Give the Lord a hand. Well, good morning and happy Easter to those of you who are in the house with us this morning. Also want to welcome our online church family. Happy Easter to all of you guys as well. If you are online, drop us a comment. Let us know where you're watching from. We'd love to connect with you. You know, it was just a year ago today um, that I stood up here on Easter Sunday and it was eerie. The room was empty and I preached to the camera in the back and I just got to tell you, I hated every second of it. And so it is so good to be here on Easter Sunday and see like live, real human beings here in the room, here to worship our resurrected Jesus. He is alive. He is good. And that's what we're here to do today is to worship him. We're so grateful for all that he's done for us, man. It's just exciting to be here. Um, if you happen to be new, maybe you came with a friend or, or a colleague, a classmate, something like that. My name's Chris. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. Um, now, this is, this is my seventh Easter of, of preaching the, the, the Easter message. And so all, all that means uh, practically for you is I'm getting old. But um, as I, as I kind of thought through this week, one of, the, one of the things I know to be true on a day like today is that underneath this roof, underneath the sound of my voice, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, is we have such an incredible mixture of people on a day like today. And so I know for a fact, some of you are your new believers. So you've just come to faith in Jesus in the last year, maybe year and a half. Uh, we've baptized some of you just in the last year, year and a half. For others of you, I know you're, man, you're old Christians. You've been walking with Jesus for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I also know that on a day like today, we have people in the room and online who are skeptics. You're just like, man, I, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff, but I, you know, it's kind of a family tradition. We all go to church together and then we go open up to Easter eggs and eat a ham and all that kind of stuff. There are also, I would guess, some of you here who are seekers and you're just like, man, I, I know something is broken in my life. Like I, I know there's something internally inside of me that just, it, it, isn't, it isn't right. And I'm, I'm trying all these other things to fix it and yet nothing's working. So maybe this is my one last shot. I'm gonna go to church and you know, see what this Jesus cat has to offer. I'm guessing there are others of you who are here and you're, you're mad at God. God has let you down in your mind. Some tragedy befell you or your family and you didn't expect it. It came out of left field and you're just kind of upset about it and you don't understand and you're mad at God. There's others of you, I'm sure, who are here and you're mad at the church because you at some point in your life got hurt in the church. And there are others of you, I guarantee you, who are here who are walking in incredible pain an incredible sorrow. And yet, and I know there's another group of you and because I used to be in this group and you're just here to get your mom off your back or your grandma off your back for a year. You're like, yes, I'll come to Easter church with you. If you'll just cook me some ham and you know, give me some chocolate bunnies for the kids, then we'll, then we'll come. Listen, regardless of why you're here, I know there's tons of reasons why people are here on Easter Sunday. I want you to know, I'm glad that you're here. I truly am happy that you're here. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received an email, maybe a DM on social media that went something like this. Hi, sir. Uh, hi, hi, ma'am. Um, we have just discovered that you are the long lost relative of insert some king in Saudi Arabia or something like that. He has died and left you an inheritance of 500 quadrillion dollars. And all you have to do to collect this money is to send us your social security number and your bank account, right? It's so all you gotta do, the money's, money's all yours. You're like, man, I fell for that in 08. Man, I, lost, I lost everything. Don't be so naive, right? Now, now we've all probably received something like that, but let me, let me ask you, if you had an actual lawyer come to your house 
and knock on your door and say, sir, madam, you're not going to believe this. I don't think that you're going to believe this, but I actually, I've known one of your great uncles. He's been a very close friend of mine for the last 30 years. And I, I was with him last night on his deathbed as he signed over his fortune to you. I'm an eyewitness. This is all certified. I have other eyewitnesses. And he has left you the family fortune of $100 million. Now, even if you are like me, like I don't, I don't believe, if you tell me the sky's blue, I'm gonna go outside and double check, right? I'm just, by nature, I'm kind of a cynic. I don't, I don't believe it. So even if you're like me, wouldn't you at least check it out? Like, even if you think, oh, this probably isn't true, this is probably a hoax, wouldn't you at least go and explore if this thing is, is, is real? Now, why would you do that? Because there's too much at stake not to, right? $100 million would change all of our lives. And so that's what I want us to do for the next 30 minutes, because listen, the Easter claim is too magnificent and it is too glorious for us not to ponder it, consider it, and investigate it. So let me kind of just set the stage for you this Easter morning, because if we don't start at the beginning, it really won't make sense. Have you ever walked into the room, maybe your family or your spouse or somebody's watching a movie, and you walk in halfway through the movie and you're just lost? Like you don't know what the heck's going on. You're like, why is that guy chasing that guy? Why, why is she mad at him? And I'm convinced that every family has at least one halfway movie question asker, Right? Every family's got that one person. If you're like, my family doesn't have that person, it's because it's you, right? You, you are the annoying, I walk in halfway through the movie and shut everything down and ask questions. Now, I'm not gonna tell you who that is in my family, but I love her deeply. She's very, very sweet, and I'll pay for this later, but I love her. <laughs> but this is what happens on Easter. A lot of times you come to church and they just start with Jesus and the resurrection, and it's kind of like the middle of the story. Like, man, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So we're not gonna do that. So here's the deal. We're going to run all the way to the beginning of the story really quickly. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. But Genesis, first book of the Bible, the first three chapters, we get this incredible scene, right? So God, God creates all that there is in heaven, on earth, and it's, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's paradise in the garden, right? There's perfect harmony between God and humanity and humanity and nature and people and animals. It's just, it's bliss, and then the first humans do what you and I do every single day of our lives. They chose sin over God. And they chose their way over God's way. We call that the fall. And ever since that moment in time, our world, our universe has really been kind of catapulted into this systemic system of chaos and pain and sorrow and death. And worse than all of that, the Bible teaches that our sin has separated us from the God who loves us and created us. And so this is the first truth that I wanna give you this morning. This will be on the screens for you. Why Easter matters, even 2,000 years later. Number one, you are broken. Aren't you glad you came to church today on Easter Sunday just to be encouraged and uplifted in your spirit? Now listen, I don't care if you're religious. I don't care if you're spiritual. I don't care if you're irreligious. I need you to understand from the outset, you are broken broken. Now, now don't, don't tune me out quite yet because it's, it's going to get better. And if you're out there thinking, Chris, you don't know me. How can you say that? That's so arrogant of you to say, man. Like, how could you even know that about me? I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I'm not separated from God. I'm not broken. I'm a, I'm a good person, Chris. 
Like I go down to the homeless shelter at least twice a year and feed homeless people. I don't litter. I pay my taxes. I don't sneeze on people when I think I've got the Rona. Like I'm a really nice person. That was uncalled for. I'm sorry. I... I'm a good person, Chris. What are you talking about? Okay, listen. If I told you that we developed a technology where we can hook this little thing up to your, up to your brain right here and it would automatically like download all of your thoughts for the last week and just kind of put them up here for everybody to see. How many of you are volunteering to come up here and let us read your thoughts for last week? How many of y'all? I'm first one out the door, right? <laughs> I'm gonna resign up here and, and sprint out there. Why? Because the reality is we've all, even just in, I'm not talking about your lifetime. I'm not talking about the last year. I'm talking about just in the last week, we've all had thoughts of anger, of envy, of pride, of lust, greed, all those things just kind of are entangled within our heart. The Bible calls that our sin nature. And deep down, don't we all know that we are broken? It doesn't matter if you think that you're a good person because you do a few good deeds. Deep down, you know when the lights are off, when you're alone, in your bed at night, you know something is broken inside of you. Just like I know something is broken inside of me. In fact, this week I went on Amazon uh, and just typed in self-help books. Self-help books. Do you know that there were over 100,000 books available on Amazon in the category of self-help? We know we're broken. We know we're broken. And so what most people tend to do for their entire lives is they search for the cure to their brokenness. And see, maybe you're like I was before I met Christ. We tend to search for that cure in things like relationships. We think other people can fix us, whether it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. And it turns out that, that that's, it never works out. Others of us kind of chase that cure in, in money. Man, we're just money or things that money can buy us. Some of us search for it in power or sex or success or new clothes or car or, or cars or whatever it is. But the reality is at the end of the day, no matter what we try and how much we pursue those things to fix what's broken inside of us, they all end up failing us. Do they not? We chase these things and maybe they satisfy us and they give us the warm fuzzies for like a day, a week, a month, and then it's gone and we're chasing something else. They live us empty and desperate. And so many of us spend our, just our handful of decades on planet earth, just kind of stumbling around in the dark, searching for joy, but mostly finding sorrow, hunting for joy, but mostly finding sorrow in life. Now the last year in particular has been one of deep darkness for a lot of people. There's been a lot of sorrow, a lot of loss. And listen, I'd put myself in that camp. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard year relationally. It's been a hard year spiritually. It's been a hard year in ministry. It's just, it's been really, really hard the last year. Well, I want you to understand that the scene that we're about to step into 2,000 years ago was also a scene of great darkness and sorrow. And as Jesus really kind of prepared his disciples in John 16 for the fact that he was about to be arrested, go to the cross, die, all these things, this is what he says to them. And I hope that you find hope in this. This will be on the screens for you. John 16, Jesus says to his guys, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's saying, they're gonna nail me to the cross and the world is gonna throw a party and you're gonna weep and you're gonna lament. But second half gives us the hope. You will be sorrowful, but listen to this, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Now that's a big promise and I believe that's exactly what God wants to do for many of you today. 
You're walking in sorrow. You're walking in darkness. You've been just kind of enslaved by depression and dark thoughts and anxiety. And I believe that God wants many of you to walk out of here in freedom and life today. Now, we're going to be in John 20. That's where we're going to park. So go ahead. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Turn on your device. If not, that's, that's cool. We'll have it on the screens for you. John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1. At this point in the narrative, you need to know Jesus has already been arrested, right, unfairly, betrayed by his own disciples, his own best friends, Judas Iscariot in particular. Uh, he was beaten to a bloody pulp. He was, he was crucified by the Romans. His deformed body had been removed from the cross. He'd been buried in the tomb of a well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea. His disciples are absolutely crushed. They're drowning in sorrow. They're walking in darkness. They're afraid. They're probably angry. They're confused. They're hiding. They're scared. And the Pharisees, these kind of religious um, jerks, really, of the day, they come to the Roman governor, Pilate, after Jesus is buried, and they say, hey, hey, Pilate, listen, we, we remember that Jesus taught that he was gonna one day die, but then he was gonna rise three days later. And so we're, we're actually kind of afraid that his disciples are gonna try to steal his body and be like, hey, look, guys, the body's gone, Jesus rose, and try to start a new revolution or a new religion. So they go to Pilate and say, hey, can we have a garrison of guards, Roman soldiers, to guard the tomb? He's like, yeah, sure. And so he sends a garrison of soldiers. History tells us that's probably between 12 and 16 of these Roman soldiers that would have been experts in hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're talking Green Beret, Navy SEAL level guys. They put the Roman seal on the thing and they got all these soldiers out there. So that's kind of the scene before we step into it. It's a dark scene, it's a scary scene, it's a hopeless scene. We're gonna start in verse one. Now on the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday, bonus points for you. Sunday, that's right. They didn't have names for days back then. They, had, they, were, they were numbered. The first day of the week was Sunday. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now, we, we know from other gospel accounts that there are actually a handful of women, several of them. John chooses to focus on one of them for a specific reason, which we'll, we'll discover uh, why in just a minute. Uh, so she came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So scholars believe this is the fourth watch uh, that would have been th between three and 6 a.m., I realize for some of you, you didn't know that that was a real time, that that time actually exists. It does, three, three to six a.m. So she's out there, it's dark, you know, probably four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, you, we kind of read that as Westerners, like, oh, yeah, somebody kicked the rock out of the, no, 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 you don't understand. In, in Jerusalem, in this day and age, when they rolled a stone over a tomb, it was massive. We're talking two to three tons. You would need quite a, number of very, very strong people to move that bad boy out of the way. Plus, you'd have to get past the Roman soldiers. Plus, you'd have to break the Roman seal, which was a capital offense. They would crucify you. So all, all kinds of problems here, right? The stone's gone. Big deal. She knows something's not right. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's presumably John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, it's interesting that Luke's gospel tells us that when the disciples first heard these things from the ladies, now you, you kind of expect the disciples to be like, heck yeah, man. He told us it was going down, and he did it. The tomb is empty. You would kind of expect their reaction to be like, party time. Let's go, boys. Let's go. He's out of the tomb. That's not their reaction. Luke 24 tells us that they thought these claims were an idle tale, and they did not believe. It seemed to them to be an idle tale, like a, the word there is like a fairy tale, like a myth. 
and they did not believe. Now, I'm just gonna guess in a room this size, particularly with all of you guys uh, watching online, there are some of you here who are there, right where the disciples were. These things just kind of seem too good to be true, kind of seems a bit like a myth, kind of seems a bit like a fairy tale, like Santa Claus, a tooth fairy, something like that. You're like, man, I, I just, I don't believe. I, I can't believe this. And if that's where you're at, I want you to know that's exactly where the disciples of Jesus were almost 2,000 years ago. And listen to me, they ended up establishing the church. They went all over the known world to preach this good news about a risen Jesus, and they wrote the New Testament. All that to say, if that's where you're at, you're like, man, this seems like a myth. I don't know if I believe this. You might just be the perfect candidate to become a disciple of Jesus today. You might be the perfect candidate to become a disciple of Jesus because that's where his disciples were. Verse three, and stooping to look in, oh, sorry, so Peter went, I got ahead of myself. So Peter went out with the other disciple, again, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, so they don't believe, but they're like, man, this is a pretty big deal. Let's go figure out what's going on. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I love that John wants us to know that he's more athletic than Peter, right? <laughs> for some reason, that was just important for us to know, that he was faster than Peter. He's like, man, listen, I, I know there are going to be some Christians reading this one day. I just want y'all to know I won the first Resurrection 5K ever. <laughs> Peter was a distant second. I smoked him. He's got to stop eating donuts. All right, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Verse six, then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. So John gets there first. He sees the open tomb, but he doesn't dare go in and who could blame him? I'm not going in. It's dark. I'm in a graveyard. I'm alone. There's an open grave. <laughs> like that's the stuff that nightmares are made out. Of. Like they make horror films out of stuff. I'm not going in. So John doesn't go in either. Slowpoke Peter finally rolls up, huffing and puffing, and he just kind of pushes John out of the way. He's like, get out of the way, scary cat. I'm gonna go check this out, man. So he walks straight in, being Peter. All right, let's go back, middle of verse six. Talking about Peter now. He saw the linen cloths lying there because Peter's in there now, still kind of dark, hard to make things out. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place neatly by itself. Now, now here's what's fascinating about this account. When John gets there first, it says that he saw the open tomb, right? And the Greek word for saw there just means observe. So John gets there and he's just like, huh, a little weird. The stone's over there. Soldiers are gone. I'm not about to go in there because it's dark and I'm alone. But the, he's observing. He's not coming to any conclusions. He's just observing. Huh, that's kind of weird. It's kind of strange. But when Peter walks in, there's another... Greek word that's used there, it's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word theoreo, from which we get our word, any guesses? Theory. That's where we get our word theory. So Peter, unlike John, is he's now examining the evidence. Okay, he, he does not yet believe. He doesn't believe, but he's going, huh, two to three stone, tone, stone ro rolled out of the way, grave clothes wrapped and folded neatly now, you gotta understand, in those days when somebody died, they would, they would take the body, they would take the corpse, and they would take about 75 pounds of spices and aloe, and they would kind of create the sticky paste, 
and they would rub it all over the body, just really thick. And then they would take linen cloth strips and they would wrap the body. So it's kind of like the movies of mummies and stuff that we've seen. That's kind of what it would look like. But it'd be about 75 to 100 pounds of just gunk and wrap on, on the body. So Peter's going, listen, man, if this, if this was a grave robbery, ro- robbers don't take the time to unwrap and clean off the body and they especially don't fold up the face cloth neatly. Man, they're, they're trying to grab and go. They're trying to get out of there quickly before anybody sees them. And so Peter's beginning to examine the evidence. And listen, I love that God does not expect us to check our mind at the door of faith. I love that. Now listen, there have been a lot of critics against Christianity, maybe you've heard this, that say, hey, listen, Christians have to check their logic at the door of faith. I want you to know if somebody told you that's a lie. That is not true. In fact, in the Bible, it says God wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, and what? And mind. In mind, following Jesus does not mean rejecting logic or reason or science. In fact, I would argue it's the opposite of that. So that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's examining the, the theory. He's examining the theory. Man, this huge stone is gone. These grave clothes are here. This thing is folded. Like, the, this is not adding up. Something crazy is going on. Verse eight, then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, just, just in case you forgot who won the race, also went... I love these guys. People that say the Bible is boring have never read the Bible. This is hilarious. Uh, Who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they're beginning to connect the dots, but they're still still a little fuzzy on the details. They're like, "Ah, what's going on here? Something's not right. This is not a grave robbery. Something weird is going on. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, this has gotta be one of the worst cases of mistaken identity in human history, right? To be fair to Mary, it's dark, right? It's four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. She'd been weeping, so you know how it is when you're, when you're crying, man, everything's kind of blurry. Maybe Jesus had a gardening hat on. We're, we're not really sure exactly what was going on. But this is a pretty big swing and a miss by Mary, right? Mistaken identity. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, I, to a much lesser degree, I know what this feels like because since I've been at New Life, I've, I've been, people have come up to me probably at least half a dozen times and mistaken me for the youth pastor, Okay. Uh, which, I, which, by the way, is a huge, huge, huge compliment because typically the youth pastor is like one of the younger, hipper, cooler guys. And I'm not as hip as Craig, our youth pastor. But, you know, I'm pretty close. And so I, I'll take the compliment. In fact, we had a lady come here just a few months. She was visiting from out of town. That's why I can tell this story. I know she's not here. But she came, she came, unless she's watching online and then I'm sorry. And she came and, uh, and she, she came up after the service and she was like, yeah, man, I've, I've heard of churches that have youth Sundays before. You know, this, I, this obviously youth Sunday, you're the, you're the youth pastor and, and that, you're, it's pretty good for a youth pastor. When, when is the head pastor coming back? 
And, and it dawned on me, she thought I was team JV, right? And I was like, man, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm varsity. <laughs> this is as good as it's ever gonna get. This is as good as it's ever gonna get here. But I take that as a, a huge compliment. You can call me youth pastor all, all, all you want, right? But this is a whole nother level of mistaken identity in the garden. Just imagine, you're Jesus. You are the risen son of God. You just conquered death, sin, and hell. And the first thing somebody does when they see you is, hey, hey man, how do you uh, grow, grow roses in the springtime or something like that? Not only that, not only does she assume he's a gardener, she assumes he's the type of gardener that would steal a body. <laughs> you just conquered death. You're a thieving, body-stealing, rose-loving gardener. Thank you, Father, for this. All right, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, now, I, I just picture Jesus saying this to her with, with such a warmth in his voice, with so much gentleness and love towards this woman. Mary, there's a way that my wife can say my name, right? Doesn't matter if I'm watching a football game. I won't try to repeat it for you because it sounds terrible, but she can say my name and I'm just like, I'm all ears. Like, what is it? Did you cook something good? We're going on a date. You know, what is, I know something good's gonna happen. That's the way I think Jesus is calling Mary right here. Mary. She, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is a term of affection and intimacy. Jesus said to her, do not, do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, there's a couple of things that are really remarkable here. First thing that really stands out to me is that the very first person that post-resurrection Jesus appears to is a woman. That's astounding. You say, Chris, what's the big deal? Are you some kind of chauvinistic pig? You sexist? No, 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 no. You gotta understand that in the first century, in this culture 2,000 years ago, Women were considered less than. I don't agree with it. I'm just telling you the facts. Back in this day, women could not vote. They were considered by many subhuman. They had very little rights. Their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. So even if they witnessed a crime, a judge wouldn't even listen to what they had to say. So listen, I say all that to say this. If you were trying to make up a story to launch a new religion, to launch a new movement, you would never in a million years make the first eyewitness be a woman. That would cut off your story from the very beginning in this culture. The only reason the gospels, and all four gospels record this fact, the only reason the gospels would say this is, listen to me, because it actually happened this way. It actually happened this way. It's also amazing to me that he appears not just to a woman, but particularly to this woman, Mary Magdalene. If you know anything about her, if you read about her and some other gospel accounts, she's what the Bible calls, called a demoniac. She was possessed by seven demons until she met Jesus and he freed her and he healed her. She was also from a city that was world-renowned for prostitution. And so some scholars have speculated that not only was she kind of demon-possessed, she would have been considered kind of a psychotic head case, but likely possibly was also a prostitute. In any case, this is a woman, a woman of ill repute, a social outcast. These people in those days would have just been homeless. They would have wandered the streets, oftentimes kind of doing self-harm, just completely ostracized. And Jesus appears to her first. 
Now that, again, that is the last thing you do if you're trying to make up a story to launch a new movement in the first century. Another incredible evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is all of the eyewitness accounts. All of the eyewitnesses. I want you to listen to Peter. This is Peter after the resurrection. This is what he writes in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths He's saying in the first century, I know some of you guys are gonna think that we made this up because this is an outlandish claim. Dead people don't rise again. I I know that. A lot of you guys are gonna think that I'm making this up. I'm not making this up. I'm not. This is not a cleverly devised myth. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, man, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw Jesus dead and hanging on a cross. And I saw his lifeless, deformed body taken off that cross and buried. And I'm telling you, I saw him three days later and he was very much alive. I spent 40 days with him. We talked together. We prayed together. We ate meals together. I'm telling you, I'm an eyewitness that he was dead and now he's alive. Now, I want you to listen to the words of, of Paul. If you know anything about Paul, Saul in the, Old, in the, in the New Testament, now, he was a, really kind of a Jewish terrorist. He was a Jesus hater and he made it his life's mission to kill as many Christians as possible and stamp out the church until he met Jesus and Jesus completely revolutionized his life. I want you to listen to what Paul says, the former terrorist, now Jesus follower. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is a guy that wrote most of the New Testament, lots of deep theological things. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is the most important thing I will ever tell you. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared, listen, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask them. There are hundreds of people that saw him alive for 40 days. Don't take my word for it. Go ask them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared also to me. Now look, I'm just telling you, there's a convenience store right on Riverside Drive, just a couple hundred yards from here. I would suggest you not do this, but if you go and you rob that convenience store right after this Easter service, and there's one eyewitness that sees you, you may or may not be in trouble. You, like if there's one person that's like, yeah, I think that was her. I'm pretty sure, yeah, that was his car. Like I'm pretty sure, just one eyewitness, you may or may not be going to prison. But I'm telling you, if there were over 500 people that saw you and they're like, yes, undoubtedly, that is him. I talked to him right before he went in the convenience store. That was him. I'm just telling you, go ahead and start doing push-ups now. Eat your Wheaties because you're going to the big house for a long, long time. 500 witnesses, there's no question. And by the way, this is how we know any and all of history. Did you know that? This is how we know any and all history. How do you know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Were you there? A couple of you were. Most of you weren't. (laughs) Were you there? No. Did you see it? No. Do you know anybody who saw it? No. Why do you believe it? How do you know that Alexander the Great was one of the, the most fearsome military conquerors in all of world history, even before Jesus was born? Were you there? No. Because eyewitness accounts corroborate historical events. 
That's exactly what Peter and John and all the disciples are saying. We are eyewitnesses. This is not a myth. We saw it with our own eyes. So here's the second truth this morning for you, second reason why Easter matters. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus is actual history. It's actual history. Do you know that people, it doesn't matter if it's Jewish historians, atheistic scholars, nobody debates the historicity of Jesus anymore. You know that? For a long time, there was an argument. Nobody worth their salt in the field argues that anymore. Everybody agrees there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who was executed by the Roman government, and it launched a new movement. Nobody disputes that. That is a historical fact. Here's another thing that you may not know. Almost nobody across any field will dispute this anymore. A lot of, for a long time they did, the last 20 or 30 years, almost nobody will dispute this, and that is the empty tomb. Nobody disputes that there was a historical Jesus. Nobody really anymore even disputes that the tomb was empty three days later. The only thing that is up for debate is how that tomb got empty. I want you to hear from one of the guys, H.G. Wells. This will be on the screens for you. Wells writes this, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth, I love that, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Listen, guys, we mark our calendar by this dude's life. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. You can't even write the date on a check or on something else without referencing this guy's life. The only debate in the major circles now is how did the tomb get empty? We know Jesus lived. We know the tomb was empty. How did it get empty? Now, skeptics have come up with four primary theories. I've gone through these theories in past Easter's. You can find those messages on our website. It's the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, the wrong tomb theory, and the hallucination theory. I've gone through all of those in detail and just taught you how none of those dogs will hunt. None of them make sense. They all break down on multiple levels. So I'm just telling you, the most reasonable, logical explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. That he lived, he died, and three days later he rose again. And listen, I haven't even mentioned maybe the most convincing evidence of the resurrection, and that is this, that his own family, after the re- not before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, began to worship him. Now, let me ask you something. For those of you who have siblings, what would it take for you to bow down and worship your sibling as God? Be honest. I have a sibling, I know. It would take a lot, wouldn't it? I'll tell you exactly what it would take. It would take your sibling claiming to be God, living a perfect righteous life, predicting their own death and their own resurrection and then pulling it off. That is the only thing that would cause you to bow down and worship your family member, your brother, as God himself. And yet that is exactly what happened. We see James doing that. James, who was one of the pillars of the church, who rejected Jesus in the early years after the resurrection, gives his life as a martyr in the early church movement. It's incredible. Now, let me give you the third and final truth I told you would end on a high note. Third reason why Easter matters. Number three, joy can be yours in Jesus. 
I just told, we just talked about last year's been tough, hasn't it? For most of us, last year's been dark and full of sorrow and loneliness and pain and not being able to be with the people that we love. It's been, it's been really, really hard. In John 20, that scene begins with a woman weeping in the dark. And the scene ends with her embracing Jesus with just kind of pure, unbridled joy and then running to, to tell everybody she can about the risen Jesus. The disciples were in utter emotional darkness on Friday and Saturday. They were broken, they were scared, they were troubled, they were buried in sorrow. And then post-resurrection, the book of Acts, we find them joyfully giving their lives away in the cause of the kingdom expansion of Jesus. Tell me what could explain that? What could take a group of cowards who are so afraid that they're hiding to these incredibly ferocious people that are joyfully giving their life away for this resurrected king that they said they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. I would argue that they found the one thing that fixed what's broken inside of each one of us and they were never ever the same. I say this oftentimes at New Life, we, we share a common problem. I don't care if you're a Christian, I don't care if you're an atheist or a Buddhist, new ager, don't believe anything, agnostic, we share a common problem and our common problem is sin. That's the bad news. And your sin, I need you to understand, separates you from a perfect and holy God. And there's nothing you can do. There's no amount of good works. You can't feed the homeless enough times. You can't clean up litter enough times to make you right with God and fix what is broken inside of you. You are hopelessly separated from a perfect and holy God by your rebellion and your sin, just like I am. That's our shared problem. We're all sinners. But we also share a common solution, a cure, and that is Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you, you gotta do something with Jesus. You gotta do something with the empty tomb. History revolves around this guy. Time is marked by this man. There have been more books written about this man than anybody else in human history. There have been more paintings painted of this guy than anybody else in human history, and it's not even close. And so though we are separated from this perfect God because of our sin, 2,000 years ago, Jesus steps onto the scene, and he's healing people, and he's loving people, he's performing miracles, and he goes, I'm the guy you've been looking for. I'm the Messiah. And I came for you because I love you. And I'm gonna prove it to you by dying and rising again three days later. And then he did exactly that. And I'm just telling you, church, I'm going with the guy who predicts his own death and then walks out of the grave three days later. That's the guy that I'm gonna, I'm gonna go all in with. That's the guy that I'm gonna stake my life on. And so we're gonna pray in just a minute. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray and do business with God. And then we're gonna sing one last song and we're gonna go eat ham and, and chase eggs and do all kinds of fun things. But before we do that, I just wanna invite you, whether you're at home, you're in the room, just to bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes, nothing weird, nothing religious-y. I'm not gonna do anything crazy. I just wanna eliminate the distractions just for a moment so you can maybe hear from God. Now, here's what I know on a day like today. I know that there are those of you who are here and you know Jesus, you've given your life to him at some point in the past. But if you're being honest, man, your, your faith life is running on fumes. And the last year has been a tough year. 
You've been walking through darkness and sorrow and pain and the world has been dragging you down. And today the call from Jesus is simply this, come back home. Come back home, what are you waiting on? Find life in me. Allow me to reignite your life and your passion in your heart. And so maybe that's where you are and you just need to recommit your life to Jesus. Like, man, I'm tired of running on fumes in my faith, man. I wanna go back all in with this guy. I know he's God, I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead on the third day and I know I need him to fix what is broken deep inside of me. And I also know in a day like today, there are many of you who are here, maybe in the room online, and you have never ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know I'm glad you're here. And maybe you're religious, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you know all the churchy Bible answers, but man, but you have never encountered the living God of this universe through a relationship with his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. And I want you, I need you to understand something. This has nothing to do with religion. People get mad at Christians all the time. Man, oh, you're always trying to convert me to your religion. No, 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 we're not. This is not a religion. This is an invitation into relationship. You need to understand something. Friend, you are the object of God's relentless love. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. You are the object of God's relentless love. The only question that remains is what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna yawn and walk away from the creator of the universe who has made a way for you to be right with him and to know him and to walk in joy and peace even in the hardships of life? Are you gonna give yourself away to the savior who came, lived, bled, and died for you? Church, you need to understand something. I have staked my life on Jesus, and here's why. Jesus pursued me as a young man when I was on a path of destruction, when I was loving my sin, and I was not looking for God at all. My heart was cold and dead, and yet God pursued me, and he stooped down from heaven. And in his mercy, and in his grace, and in his love, he said, you're mine. Just like Jesus whispered to Mary, in the garden, Mary. I believe that God is whispering your name in some of your hearts and your minds right now, and he's calling you home. He's calling you to leave your sin, and he's calling, to, calling you to leave your self-righteousness, and he's calling you to leave your religion, and he's calling you to leave all these other things that you're trusting in and find hope and life in him. We're gonna get a, get a chance in just a moment to pray and respond and to receive Jesus if that's where you're at. But here's what I can tell you. I'm not the same person I was before I met Jesus. I'm not perfect. I have struggles every single day of my life, but I can tell you I am a new creation in Christ. And here's what else I can tell you. He wants to and he will do the very same thing for you. All you gotta do is ask. All you gotta do is ask. And I wanna close with this portion of Peter's letter. I think it summarizes what we've been talking about so well. This is what Peter says after the resurrection. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. That's the offer this morning. That you can be born again, made a new creation in Christ through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance, Peter says, that is imperishable, 
undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for just a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, he's talking to us, modern day disciples, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is our Savior, church. And we're going to stand up and we're going to sing, and I want you to belt it out, and I want you to sing louder than you've ever sung in your life, because he is worthy. He is alive, that tomb is empty. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We are so grateful that when we were broken, when we had no way to get to you, because of our sin, you came for us. You sent Jesus, and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And he died a brutal death as a substitutionary payment for our sin. And then three days later, he rose, God. And I pray if there's anybody here under the sound of my voice, either online, in the room, that has not taken that step of faith yet and given their life to Jesus, they would just cry out right now and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know there's something broken in me. I don't know what it is, but I've been trying all these other things and none of it works. So God, the best way I know how, I don't know all the right words, but the best way I know how, I just want to give my life to you. I want to turn from my sin and I want to follow Jesus from this day to my last day on this planet. God, we love you. We're so grateful for everything that you've done for us. We pray and we ask all these things in the mighty, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing our hearts out. Our king is risen. That tomb is empty.